I'd like to start this morning by reading the first few verses to set the tone for our message this morning. Beginning in verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. My message this morning is entitled Standing in Holiness. As we began First Peter, I made the guarantee to all of you that at one time or another, as believers in Jesus Christ, we will find ourselves going through what we call a storm of life, a trial, a trouble, a tribulation. And whatever that storm looks like, we can be guaranteed at one time or another, we will be going through one of those storms. As, it been, as it's been said about Christians, Christians are either heading into a trial, they're heading out of a trial, or they're in a trial at one point or another in their lives. We wanted to help prepare you for those times of trouble, whatever they may look like. I want you to put a face on the trial, trouble, or tribulation that you may face. But Peter wrote this letter to encourage believers that were about to experience great persecution for their faith. Some would lose their lives, some would lose their wealth, some would lose uh, their privilege of living in their homeland as Jews and as Jewish Christians specifically. And Peter's writing to these individuals that are now abroad, encouraging them to stand in the storm. But as he is doing so, he now brings us to the topic of holiness. I wish this topic was discussed at great lengths across our churches in America today, but unfortunately it is again one of those neglected topics. And many Christians in America today, I believe, feel very comfortable with the idea of holiness as long as they leave it in its what I call its current state. And what do I mean by that? What do I mean by holiness in its current state? One of the reasons that Christians are comfortable with the idea of holiness is because they keep it in its current state of being abstract in definition without any type of specific definite identity. As long as they keep the concept of holiness abstract, they therefore feel that they aren't responsible for the application or applying it into their own lives. And this is absolutely false in every sense of the term. For holiness has been completely defined for us in the Bible. We are called to walk in holiness as believers in Jesus Christ, and we are responsible for that as followers of Jesus Christ. So to keep the idea of holiness as this abstract ideology isn't sufficient. We must define it and we must 
take ownership and responsibility for it in our own Christian lives. This is essential. We know the world uh, ridicules the Christian church due to hypocrisy. Well, a hypocrite is one who says they are one thing and do just the opposite. And I got to be honest with you, we have frankly too many individuals in our culture today who call themselves Christians, but have no desire to live the Christian life. They have no desire to be different, to be unique from those in the world. They have no desire for it, but they want to know that they're going to heaven when they die. They want to know that Jesus is there for them to help them in their time of need. But let's talk about when it really matters. When it really matters, when temptation is staring us in the face, trying to draw us away from the best that God has for us into the mere temporal pleasures of this world. I don't know about you, but if someone says to me that they can do something or that they are something, and then I find that they have uh, really no skill in that area, or they aren't really living as they should, that's kind of a, a turnoff for me, you know? It's just like, really? You know, I went on Angie's list. I, 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 you said you were a plumber, and I got you here, and you had no idea what these pipes do. Huh? Wouldn't that aggravate you? Yeah, absolutely, man especially when your house is filling up with water. Or you, 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 you know, you, have, you go to a doctor and you say, listen, I, I've got this problem. And he goes, well, I'm not that kind of doctor. Well, what kind of doctor are you? I'm the other kind. Where do I find the one I need? Today, we as Christians need to understand that God is holding us responsible to walk in holiness. So therefore, we need to understand what it means And we need to take ownership and responsibility for it. And that's what Peter wants to drive home in our text this morning. Secondly, when it comes to holiness. As I was reading many sermons given on the topic of holiness, I discovered that the way that the pastors approached it was to soft-pedal it to their congregation. By, you know, kind of using the what I call the... uh, reverse Oreo method, fluff, the hard stuff, and a little bit of fluff afterwards. So they try, to sh- they try to soften the blow and saying, listen, if you're unhappy, then maybe it's because you're not walking in holiness. If your relationships are all falling apart, maybe it's because you're not walking in holiness. And they try to sell it to you. Like it's a benefit if you do it and you will be greatly blessed and benefited from it. What happened to the days where we read the Bible and the Lord says, be holy for I am holy, and that settled the argument? Let's just be honest, okay? Why, are we, why have we become such snowflakes that everything has to be sold to us in such a, a manner such as this? It'll help you with your Facebook friends. You'll Instagram better. You can Snapchat more readily if you're only holy. You'll be more happy in this life now if you're only holy. Now, of course, I am exaggerating it, but I will tell you that many have adopted that approach. 
trying to take this hard subject and soft pedal it at the beginning at the end so people come to realize maybe I should be holy because you know right I'm just not happy and yet Peter says very clearly as it is written be holy for God is holy that's it so this morning I want to begin by defining holiness for you And as I define it and I flesh it out for you, we then need to take responsibility for it. Because if if we are Christians, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, and we look forward to that day of the joys of heaven, eternal life, and the new heaven, the new earth, and all that is promised to those who are in Christ, that we are heirs to the King, sons and daughters to God the Father, if we enjoy all the blessings of being a Christian, why should we not walk as one here and now? Then secondly, from our text this morning, if you are one of those individuals who need motivation, I'm going to give you five. Uh, But they're not politically correct. They're right out of the text These are five reasons to motivate us to walk in holiness that Peter gives us absolutely very clearly in this next set of verses, 13 to 25. He wants his readers to understand that when you go through persecution, when you go through times of trouble, trial, and tribulation, you're at a vulnerable state. And it would be very easy, especially if you're being persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ, to compromise to deny and to reject, simply to withgo the, uh, forgo the persecution at this moment and for that moment of temporary pleasure that may come from the absence of that persecution. But Peter says, at these points in our lives, we need to be more conscientious of our conduct than at ever before. We need to be holy for he is holy. So Eric, what does holiness mean? Give me the definition that I can embrace, that I can then take responsibility for. I'm going to describe it by three different words. Holiness means, number one, to be separate. Number one, to be separate. Holiness means, number two, to be different. With the idea of uniqueness attached to it. And number three, holiness means totality. All of you, every part of your life needs to come under the subjection and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's holiness. To compromise on any one of the three is inconsistent with the character of our Heavenly Father. So holiness, separate. Holiness is different. Holiness is totality. Every part of you. This is what God's calling us to. When he talks about separate, he means that God has taken you out of the world and you were once part of this camp, part of this fallen world, with sin and death reigning over you, and your moral standard was that of the world or your own prescribed moral code, 
and God ripped you out of that darkness, ripped you out of that death, and placed you into life and light. He separated you from the world by making you a new creation. That's the first point of holiness. God wants us to be separate from the world, which positionally He has done for us already. It's a matter of practicality in our everyday life. We need to be separate. Number two, we need to be different, therefore. Since we are a new creation in Jesus Christ, we need to be different than the world. How do we be different? Number one, by thinking differently than the world does. There's no way that you can become a Christian and radically changed and not think differently. Your standard for morality is no longer that of the world. It is the gospel. It is no longer that of the professional ideology uh, and philosophers of this world. It is now the scriptures. This is our basis for the understanding of our world, for the understanding of God, for the understanding of ourselves and everything else that goes with it. It is the scriptures. We need to be different. Now, the world today applauds individuality and difference. But I would argue that that individuality and difference is always curtailed by conformity. In every way, shape, and form, people try, trying, are trying to find today their individual identity. The number one question that people are asking of themselves today is this, who am I? Who am I? People feel like they are drowning in the sea of humanity. They have no face. They have no personal identity. They don't know who they are and what they are. And they are trying to be unique. They're trying to be different as long as it continues to conform with everybody else. I want you to chew on that today because that's exactly what we see happening. But apart from God, I am never going to truly understand who I am. Apart from God, I am never fully going to be satisfied with who I am. Understand that. With God, I not only learn who I am, but I then become satisfied to continue as I am in the Lord. So we need to be different. We need to be unique. Not conforming to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds into the uh, individual that God wants us to be. And number three, when it comes to totality, when we read verses like the key to understanding the law is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, the word that troubles me there is the word all. Did Jesus mean all? Or did he not? And so let us understand that when it comes to these things, We must look at our lives as a total and God is asking us to subject every idea, every action under the weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when it comes to my identity as an individual, when it comes to my personal practices, my ethics, 
no matter if it's uh, ethics within marriage or sexuality or whatever it may be, it is all governed by God because that's who I am in Christ. It must be the totality of us. It must be all of us. Again, as Peter says, be holy for I am holy. As One pastor wrote, he said this, being holy means like God, separating ourselves unto him and his truth and naturally separating ourselves from those things that are not like him and not according to his truth. If you're going to be a Christian, walk as if you're a Christian, okay? We don't need the publicity any longer. We need authentic, genuine individuals who really love God, who are sold out to Him and saying, I don't care about the pleasures of this world. I am living for the glory of God. That's what we need today. And it starts with you and I. Let's not look at the body of Christ around us and start pointing fingers and looking at them uh, down at them for what they may be doing. It all starts with us in this room today before the Lord. It starts with us, right? And trust me, God knows what we do. Nothing is hidden from Him. Don't come here one day and, 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 and look like a Christian and you carry your Bible the right way and you say the right things and you take communion properly and you interact with one another. You may even pray. Yeah, and, and, you're, and you're so humble and gracious. You let people go uh, before you afterwards uh, for the food and the fellowship hall, you know, because you're a Christian. But then you get out into the world and you start talking like the world dropping the F-bomb every other day. Or you have no moral restraints when it comes to those things you read and watch. That when any kind of temptation uh, uh, presents itself, you don't even consider it. You just fall right into it. God knows what happens behind closed doors. God knows what's happening in your heart and in your mind. All is open and naked and exposed before him. You're not getting away with anything. But see, we have this false construction today that, well, God is looking at us compared to everybody else. And as long as I'm not as bad as the person sitting next to me, I'm okay with God. The person next to you is not the standard. The person that is the standard is Jesus Christ. We need to reevaluate some things in our, in our thinking and in our culture. We do. I'm begging you as your pastor, consider these things. Because when I read these words, Peter is not writing them just for the sake of writing them. He's not trying to look like a good apostle just by writing what everybody else does. He's writing this because it matters. It matters to you and I. When it comes to separating ourselves unto God. Do you notice that the term holy is often used when it comes to marriage? Holy matrimony. When you get married, you are separating yourself from everybody else, your family, your friends, previous relationships, and you are concentrating yourself onto the person in whom you are marrying. If that person 
then who gets married in holy matrimony decides to have relationships outside of that marriage relationship, what would you call that person? An adulterer, right? Isn't it funny that the Old Testament accused Israel of committing adultery against God? The New Testament tells us that we're betrothed onto our Heavenly Father through Christ. And is it possible that if we interact with the world improperly, that we are becoming adulterers to God? Yes, that's exactly what those scriptures say. So think about how we frown about it on adultery today. And how people are devastated from adultery. Adultery doesn't just affect the person who is involved in the sin. It affects the whole family, the wife, the husband, whoever the opposite partner is. The children are affected by adultery and so on and so forth. Trust is lost. Your world is devastated and shattered. Think of the other example of the term holy. Holy scriptures. This book... It's called the Holy Bible for a reason because there's no other book like it in this world. This is the inspired word of God. And as a result, we need to be understanding of that and respectful of that and in awe of that when it comes to this word. So I'm going to give you five reasons out of our text really quickly as Peter motivates us in this way. And number one, the Lord's return. Verse 13 and 14. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. We'll stop there. The return of Jesus Christ is a central doctrine to Christianity. The disciples, the apostles, lived in the anticipation that Jesus was going to return in their day. And they lived accordingly. They saw the return of Jesus Christ as a motivation for holiness, for purity. We are 2,000 years removed, and I tell you today that the church has become apathetic and complacent when we discuss the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though our world is getting um, farther and farther away from its original creation, we certainly cannot say that the world is more stable today than it has been in the past. Those who believe that society will eventually evolve into this utopia, we're going in the wrong direction. And of course, just this week, we see that one of the greatest forces on earth can now be released in a moment of time. In 1945, the United States of America released a weapon that today we now see can be held in the hands of those carrying a suitcase or a rogue nation like North Korea. Do you realize that just within the last two weeks, these weapons have been uh, formally threatened to be used against the United States' interest in Guam? We live in incredibly unstable times. 
we must understand things are not getting better. The Lord's return cannot happen soon enough. We need to be living as if the Lord could return any moment for his church. And I believe that's the next step. I believe that the next step is the Lord removing his church from this world to throw and to propel this world into a time of tribulation like never seen before outlined for us in the book of Revelation. And as a result, we need to live accordingly. I'd like you to notice how John wrote about this in the gospel, I'm sorry, in his first letter. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are, he says. The reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him, that is Christ. Beloved, he says, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then verse 3, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ is meant to be a catalyst to keep us living for Christ and resisting the temptations and the allurements of the world. Notice what Peter says here in, his te- in our text. He says, prepare your minds. He's saying, get ready, roll up your sleeves. Set your mind on the things that need to be accomplished. Think of it this way, if you will. Think of an athlete right before the big game, the Super Bowl. And you often see those shots of the locker room and they're just sitting there in quiet preparing their minds, going through the execution of every play and every detail. That's what he is talking about. Think about the soldier that is about to be uh, dropped into enemy lines, behind enemy lines, I should say, and they're mentally preparing themselves. Or those individuals pulling up onto the shores of D-Day on Omaha Beach thinking and preparing themselves for what is going to happen next, playing out the scenario. He says, roll up your sleeves, get ready. Secondly, he goes on to say, preparing your minds for actions, being sober-minded, being morally alert, attentive to your surroundings. Make sure that you are avoiding circumstances that are going to draw you away into temptation. If something bothers you, get rid of it. Now, you can't do that with your wife. You can't do that with your kids. But let me be more specific. We have an epidemic in the church today of individuals struggling with the bondage of pornography. Get rid of the computer. Get rid of the TV. Now, these aren't permanent solutions. This is just the first step. But what you must do is stop. Stop the access. Hinder yourself from going there and making sure that you are not surrounding yourself with pitfalls that are just begging you to come their way. If there are relationships that you are in that are taking you away from the Lord Jesus Christ, you must reevaluate those relationships. You must look at them again. 
I'm not saying to avoid all contact with the world. I'm just saying that if you're in a relationship, if you're in a dating relationship with a non-believer, the Lord would say, hey, no way, don't go there. You are going to find yourself in trouble being unequally yoked in such a manner. We need to be aware. We need to be morally alert of what is around us. We need to be sober-minded, thinking clearly, not distracted with the thinking and the ideology of the world, but focusing on the Word of God and allowing Him to help us navigate walking circumspectly, a word used in the older versions of the English Bible, step-by-step carefully through this world knowing that we are to wait in great anticipation fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You are, as a believer, should look for the revelation, the return of Christ with great anticipation, welcoming his return. This is what Peter is saying. The grace that God gives us is not just for when we get saved, we stand it in at the present, and it guides us in the future. This unmerited favor of God. So number one, motivation for living in holiness is the return of Jesus Christ. Number two, the word commands it. Verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 15. But as he who has called you is holy... You also be holy in what your conduct? What? I didn't hear it. All. There it is again. There's that word we don't like. I don't mind parts of my life, Lord, but all, really? All of your life. Because we need to be different if we're truly Christians. We need to be unique in the sense that we're living for the glory of God and not for our selves and its and the temporal pleasures of this world we need to be holy for it is written verse 16 you shall be holy command for i am holy why are we holy because we are holy because it's consistent with the character of god that's why bottom line we are separate we are different and unique and we are totally surrendered because that represents and reflects i should say better word our heavenly father who is in heaven and he goes on to say if he is holy let us be holy this is a verse out of Leviticus 11.44. It is something that Peter grew up with. It was part of his DNA. And we become this by first becoming that new creation in Jesus Christ. We can't even discuss holiness until we are first saved. That's the first step in being holy before God and before the world. We must get saved. The reason I talk about this is that I am very concerned that there are many attending church regularly uh, here in the United States of America who are not saved in Christ. They have respect for him. They have reverence for him to a certain degree, but they are not saved. Their life would indicate that if they were honest with themselves, but as long as they continue on with the blinders about them, 
They will not realize their need for Jesus Christ. They are some of the hardest people to reach because they already think that they are saved. But I'm telling you something. It used to be very uh, common and these people used to be very comfortable here in the United States because they were allowed to live in this facade without any kind of challenge. That's changing today. The world is not allowing for that any longer. And now you are starting to see the real fruit, the real heart come forward of these individuals. People that we thought were saved now are demonstrating and showing us that they never truly knew Christ. And that's a very dangerous position to be in. So number one, we have to be saved. And number two, we need the word of God. For it is the word of God that works in us through the Holy Spirit that brings about this holiness. As Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, he says, And we also thank God continuously for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it is really the word of God, which is at work in you believers." I'll never forget when I was a Sunday school teacher years ago and I was trying to help children understand the incredible ability of the Word of God to clean us out, to change us from the inside through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as I was trying to explain it, I was coming at it from different you know, perspectives and different uh, manners to help them understand it and retain it and to uh, and to get it. And I was going, uh, I was uh, learning at that time, so I think I was using words that they had never heard before, and they were all sitting there like this. You know? And I'm like, oh, I'm such a good teacher. I'm just awing them. And they're like, we have no clue what you're saying. <laughs> and as I kept explaining it over and over and over again, finally one little girl said to me, so the word of God is like scrubby bubbles. And I said, you got it. And that's so true. If we need to deal with our minds and our hearts before God, let the word have its work in you by reading it. Not academically, but relationally. Reading it as if it's someone who has just messaged you on Facebook that you haven't heard from from a long time and they are far removed from you and you've waited with anticipation for that letter from them. Read it that way as a love letter to you from God and get to know him and his heart and what he has for you and what he is capable of doing and all of his mind and thoughts towards you are found in the Word of God. And not only that, but the Word works in you. God has then given us the Holy Spirit, unique to every religion of the world, uh, from the every religion of the world, the Holy Spirit residing in us gives us the ability to apply the Word of God readily within us. So number two, the Word commands it. Number three, verse 17. The coming judgment of God. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, 
Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. So number three, let us understand that when it comes to our sanctification, when it comes to our walking in holiness, let us first understand that we are going to have to give an account before God of our lives. For 2 Corinthians chapter 5 clearly articulates that to us and also 1 Corinthians 3. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says that all of us will stand before the Bema Seat of Christ, where our lives will be examined, not for the purpose of salvation, which has been rendered and given at the cross, but for the purpose of reward. And as 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that we are going to pass as we approach the throne of God, pass through what the Bible calls this type of fire, and anything that is like wood, hay, and stubble, the things that we did with the wrong motives, the things we did for ourselves, the things we did for our pleasure and glory, they're going to pass away. And those things that we did with the right heart for the glory of God will be left as uh, gold and silver and precious jewels. And it's out of those things that this crown, this wreath is made and given to us by God for us to eventually give back to Him in Revelation chapter 5. We are going to have to give an account of our life before our Lord and Savior. But understand this, it isn't just at that moment that God sees those things that we do. It's when we're alone, when we think no one's watching, when no one is around. I'm just going to take this quick, quick you know, peek at this. I'm just going to do this one thing. Nobody knows. It's a secret. No, it's not a secret before God, man. Let's not play games with God. Let's not limit Him to our own understanding of who He is. He's the God of all creation. He sees and knows everything. I want to glorify Him because of all that He has done on my behalf. Because number four, it moves right into the fact of how and what was required for me to become a Christian. The redemptive act of Jesus Christ, I was redeemed back to God, not by silver and gold and precious stones or money or anything like that that we value so highly. It was by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. This is what was required to bring me back to God. And if I call myself a Christian and walk contrary to the character of God in my personal life, I am spitting on that. I am throwing up my fist in rebellion to all that God has done on my behalf. God, let's think about it, guys, for a moment. This is what was required for God to bring us back to Him He sent his son who was slaughtered on our behalf. And as a result, I now can enter through his sacrifice by faith and once again have that relationship with God that was severed because of my sin initially. 
And yet Christians walk like today that that doesn't matter at all. But I have to ask the question, why is it any different than anything else in this world? How is it that we here in the United States of America can exercise our freedom in the manner in which we do and don't have any gratitude for the men and women who paid for this freedom in their own lives? How is it that we can allow our freedoms to be taken from us so easily when they were bought and paid for so expensively? Let's ask ourselves these questions. It kills me when I listen to these things that are supposed to be uh, humorous when people, oh, what decade was World War II? Oh, 1960. What? You know, when was the Vietnam War? 1990. They don't know. They don't understand. They don't get it. Freedom is anything but free, is it? Our freedoms in Christ were not bought and paid for by gold and silver or money, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And you know what we do with them? We squander them off to the things of this world. Let's just be honest. We were given this freedom so we could worship God freely. Isn't that funny? Why were we given the freedoms here in this nation? So we could worship God freely. And what have we done with them? We were, these things were bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Commentator William MacDonald wrote these words. We are to pass the time of our stay here on earth in fear. Christians are not at home in this world. We are living in a foreign country exiled from heaven. We should not settle down as if we were permanent dwellers or residents here in this world. Neither should we imitate the behavior of earth dwellers. We should always remember our heavenly destiny and behave ourselves as citizens of heaven. Let us remember that. And lastly, number five, verse 22, let us read here up to that knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, we're up in 18, but with with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, like that of a lamb without spot nor blemish. He was perfect. Christ was sinless in every aspect and every way. From the time he was born to the time he died and lived those 33 years on this earth, he was perfect in every way. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. God knew before he ever began the creation process what was going to happen before it happened. And before anything ever began in the act of creation, the son had already decided and was willing to die on our behalf. The plan of God was orchestrated from the very beginning to allow us to return to the Father once again through the Son, Jesus Christ. God did that on our behalf. Because many ask me today, why would God ever start the creation process knowing that we would sin and all this evil would come and suffering and so on and so forth? And I tell them it's because He loved us. And he counted the full cost before he ever started the process. 
And it's interesting that Christ asks us to count the cost of following him. Think of what it will cost you. The standard of following Christ is denying himself and taking up the cross and following after him. That's the standard for following Christ. He counted the cost and yet he still went through it on our behalf because he loved you to that depth and extent. In verse 21 at the last times for the sake of you who are through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. As an individual, when I go through trials, troubles, and tribulations, I am to focus and to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because what did Christ suffer? Everything, right? Before that. And at the resurrection, is he ever going to suffer again? Ever? No, never to suffer again. So whatever I go through, as Peter reminded us last week, it is temporal. It is necessary because God feels it's necessary within my life. And it is purposed in my life to create in me the image of God that God so desires. That's the purpose of trials, troubles, and trips tribulations. And lastly, as we close it out in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through, I should say, the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Lastly, for the sake of your fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, we must pursue holiness. There's a lot of animosity within the church today. I'm reading more and more about it. Christians not able to get along with other Christians. And I am starting to see and to sense that from these articles, what is happening is you have individuals identifying themselves as Christians, but not living like Christians. Not humbling themselves before each other. Not loving each other as Christ loved the church. So Christians are becoming annoying to other Christians. Christians are beginning to wear on the nerves of other Christians. And it's because we're not living as God has asked us to live and to do so. If we don't have each other, we don't have anybody because the world has discarded us. The world has hated us like it has hated Christ. And as Peter says here, realize that all flesh is fading. Everything in this world, it's here one day, it has a sense of glory, but it's gone the next. But it's the word of the Lord that endures forever. It's the promises that he has given us. It's the scripture that is on your lap. These are the things that are going to weather the test of time. And under 2,000 years of persecution, the word of God is still thriving today like never before. They can't get rid of it, no matter how they try. 
We had an emperor in Rome shortly after the uh, dismantling of Jerusalem that commissioned that all the copies of the word of God be destroyed. And they estimate that only 20 copies were left in the entire world after that mandate had been uh, set forth by uh, Diocletus. And yet the very next emperor was an emperor named Constantine. And guess what he did? Adopted Christianity and started publishing the word of God in bulk. The very next one. The world has tried to get rid of the word of God, but it still stands the test of time today. So be holy, for he is holy. And do so because the Lord will return for you. Do so because the word commands it. Do so because of the coming judgment and the accountability that we are going to have to make before the risen Lord. Do it because of the price that Christ paid on your behalf to allow you the privilege of restoring that relationship with God the Father. Do it because of the fellowship of the brethren that are needed. As he says here, love each other sincerely. And to love each other that way, we must walk in the holiness that God has asked us to walk in. To be separate. To be different and unique. Totally submitted to the Lord. So as we go through trials, troubles, and tribulations, let us remember that as we weather the storms of life, Let us stand in holiness.